joy. That's who we answer to. Joy is youthful. Joy inspires works of art. It is collectible and shapes the future. Joy has a fan club. It's contagious and it can even be counted. Joy is efficient, dynamic, and unstoppable. We realized a long time ago that what you make people feel is just as important as what you make. And at BMW, we don't just make cars. We make joy. And this morning, that's what I want to talk about, is joy. And uh, I don't know whether your faces were up there on that montage, whether you're a, a BMW owner who's going to sort of start to shrink back in your seat in a few minutes, because uh, you might suspect it's going to get a bit of a pasting. Um, <laughs> suffice to say, I'm not on there. I'm, I'm a pastor, so believe me, I don't drive a BMW. Everybody in life is looking for joy. Everybody, without exception. Every minute of every hour of every day you live, you're looking for joy. You might not realize it, you might not say it like that, but every choice you make, everything you do, is about trying to find joy somewhere. Uh, and BMW famously have uh, tried to cash in uh, on, on their marketing by, by describing themselves as the story of, of joy. And the initial reaction might be to say, well, how on earth can BMW be selling joy? It's just a car. But they're right. They are absolutely right to be saying that they are selling joy. They don't sell cars. They sell a promise of joy. See, the question for us is not just, are you looking for joy? You are. You're looking for it somewhere in life. You're looking for some meaning to your life and something that's going to make this make sense and have a purpose. The question is where? Where are you going to look for it? And when you look for it, will you find it? So back to BMW. Are they selling joy? Of course not. They're selling a car. But they are. They're selling a promise at joy. What they're saying is you buy this car you'll have joy. By this car, you'll be just like these people. And it's not the car itself, is it? It's what the car stands for. So maybe it's the sense of achievement that you've bought a premium item. And perhaps you're a premium person as a result. Perhaps you're a cut above uh, the rest of us civilians uh, driving a Suzuki. Or perhaps it's the image that now you're successful You've made good choices in life, and now people will know this because you've purchased a very expensive car. Perhaps it's the feeling now that you have approval from wherever it is you look because you've got that BMW, whether it's your parents you look for approval from, whether it's your colleagues, whether it's those you live around, whether it's those you want to live around, those you want to be your colleagues. Whether it's the feeling that now you're providing more than your parents ever provided for you. Whether it's just 
the underlying satisfaction and contentment that you've arrived because you've purchased this item. That is why someone buys a BMW. So in my line of work, I'm a a pastor in, in Wales. One of the kind of hazards of the job is I get lied to a bit. Okay, I'm just going to be honest. Sometimes I get lied to. Sometimes I let it go. Uh, other times I'm a bit more mean and I, I push it, but sometimes I let it go. Here's an obvious time when I was lied to. I'm talking to a friend, talking to me, wants to convince me of how frugal he is. I don't particularly mind either way, to be honest. His money. He tells me, you know, Dom, you know, I'm very careful with my money. I've, I've just got a very sensible car, reliable, fuel-efficient, you know, comfortable. That's, that's all it is. Would have been a lot more convincing to me if it wasn't a top-of-the-range white BMW (laughs) sat on the drive that I've seen him driving away in before. He doesn't realize I've seen his car already. (laughs) I get lied to sometimes. He didn't buy that car because it was fuel-efficient. He didn't buy it because it was a nice runaround. He bought it because it was a BMW and it was a status purchase. It said something about him. It said something about what he was doing that his family hadn't. That is what BMW offers. That is what all these products that are pumped at us are offering. And that is what we buy. Or not. But joy is what we're all seeking in life. There's not one of us not looking for it somewhere. The question is, where will you look and will you find it? So let me read just a few words from the Bible for you. If you want to turn there uh, as well, you can. It's page 623 on the Bibles in front of you. Or if you've got your own special Bible with you, you can follow on in your own. This is uh, Psalm 126. I'll give you a few seconds to get there. This is what it says. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we're filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping Carrying seed to sow will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. And there's just three uh, things I want to look at in there, especially in that word joy that I've been asked to talk about. And look at a joy to find, a joy to get through, and a joy to go. We see a joy that is found here. Firstly, a joy that is found, that sets you free. That's what the people are are talking about here. The people find joy in God's having redeemed them. And specifically in the context for this people, it's redeeming them from exile in Babylon. There are people who have been carried out of their own land as slaves into Babylon to go and to work hard labor for another king. And the rejoicing is that God has delivered them out of Babylon, back into their land. People who were powerless and weak, unable to rescue themselves, and have been rescued by God. And, and it's put in three ways there, isn't it? Look, if, if you look down to, to the text in front, it says, we were like those who dream. So it characterizes it as, as dreaming, daydreaming. 
It also puts it as laughing, doesn't it? Our mouth was filled with laughter, dreaming and laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy, with shouting also. And there's a way of showing how totally God had brought them joy in redeeming them from the situation they had been in, a situation that seemed hopeless, that they couldn't possibly have rescued themselves from. So much so that it has become internationally known. Verse 2 there says that they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So that other countries are recognizing the deliverance that God has brought them the joy he's brought to them in so doing, how he's rescued them from a point that only he could have. And they have recognized that it is God who has done it for them. It's not a skill of a leader or a king, not the might of their power, their money, or their uh, tools or weapons, but God who has delivered them and done great things for them. And so the people are able to look back on God's work to free them from exile. And in fact, this has happened not only once, because this has happened before in Egypt as well. And you might wonder why it would be, I, you know, face this question sometimes as, as I've worked with you, you know, what is the point in the Old Testament for us today? I mean, we can sort of see why the New Testament would be valuable. There's a lot about Jesus in there. But sometimes it kind of feels like the Old Testament. Why are we looking back there to a historical book, dealing with one specific people pretty much? Uh, You know, can we really now just read it today and take things out of it for us? Is that just reading it out of context? Reading it somewhat superstitiously, perhaps? Well, the reason is that this is a motif that we are supposed to understand Jesus through again and again, and to understand God's work for us as much today as it was yesterday. It's historical fact, no doubt. But it can be truth today for you. That idea that God could free you from the very thing you feel helpless to be freed from. Perhaps the most difficult thing to be freed from, perhaps yourself. Perhaps yourself. Because perhaps... We are our single biggest oppressor. There is nobody that lies to you more than you. You know that? There is nobody who talks down to you as much as you do. There is nobody who doubts you more than you. God would even move to free us from even ourselves. And not only does God free these people from slavery, on the one hand, and just sort of leave them, well, there you are, you're out of there now, you now sort yourselves out. But he establishes a kingdom and a rule among them so that there can actually be healthy, joyful, flourishing living for generations to come. And that's the whole idea of of the Ten Commandments and and, and the rest of those books of the law is about setting up a healthy Society where everyone is included, where everyone is equal, where everyone is valued, where everyone is considered. That's the reason why God takes everything so seriously. I mean, you wonder why he's so angry at people who have mildew on their shower curtains? I mean, come on, God, cut us some slack. I have three kids to do. I work. I have to 
basically be a, a primary caregiver to my husband too. Would you not give us some slack that there might be a little bit of mildew on the shower curtains? Why does he care? Why is that said in the same kind of context and chapter as don't kill people? How can the two things be comparable? That you shouldn't kill people and you shouldn't have mildew on your shower curtains. Because the idea is that everybody counts. And what you're saying in in not taking care for people when they're in your house, just like it says, if you don't take care for your roof and someone falls through it and injures themselves, then you're in trouble, is because it says that you didn't care for them. And actually, you are to be a people who are to care for one another. That actually, you consider everything. You consider the way you look after people. You consider your... uh, the environment that you're providing. Because everybody counts, and this is the culture and the kingdom that they are to be making. Joy is found here for the people in God, saving them and bringing them into a healthy environment set for everybody to flourish. And for us, we're not exiles in Babylon. Difficult to read it and apply it to today, isn't it? But there's a sense in which we live, those of us trying to follow Jesus, still cut off from God because we haven't seen him. We don't see him. He's not physically here. Believe he's here and he's amongst us and he's working in us and with us, but we don't see him. We're in a sense in exile to an extent. And we live in hope that there's coming a moment where the kingdom will be fully restored again, that kind of kingdom that's set for everybody to flourish and to have their place and to have peace. It's what Jesus means when he says, come to me those who are weary, heavy laden, burdened, those who are burnt out looking for joy in other places, looking for joy in cars, in career, in success, in acclamation, in approval, in having the perfect family. Come to me, those of you who are burnt out trying to find joy there and not finding it. Only finding that you have moments of endorphins and dopamine. The two things you technically, only two things you like, but that fade and build dependence. Come to me, those who are tired of doing that. Tired of cars promising you joy and you not finding it. Tired of a successful career, promising you joy and not delivering. Tired of a perfect family idea, not delivering. Come to me and find joy and rest. There is a joy to be found in God. There's also a joy to get through. See, joy, true joy, doesn't mean no pain in life. Or it's not about hiding from the reality of pain, or even maybe being destroyed by it. True joy actually is a kind of contentment at times that enables you to endure pain. It enables you to go through loss and suffering. See, they put it here, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad that people recognize all that God has done for them in delivering them. But then the next verse, verse 4, they say, restore our fortunes, O Lord like streams in the Negev. You see, because they still needed delivering. 
Because the story for them here is some of the people had come back from exile in Babylon, but not everyone. There were still some trapped. And their prayer and their cry is, Lord, this is fantastic, but would you bring all of our brothers and sisters back? And it needs redeeming and restoring, and it's not ingratitude. You see, what's happening here is on the basis that you have already delivered, God, and already are delivering, we ask you again. We ask you because of who you are, because you do deliver, and you are happy to deliver, and you only ever deliver on your promises. We ask you again, restore our fortunes. You see, the, the significance of, of the streams in the Negev is in, in the desert lands of Judea, what would happen is in the rainy season, sometimes these streams would appear from nowhere. As the heavy rains came, it would leave a stream there. And so in the midst of a barren place, you could actually have a water source, invaluable. But then, when the dry season comes, it takes it away. And what was there so shortly ago, goes. And in fact, you wouldn't even know that it was there. And there's nothing you could do to it. It was purely dependent on rainfall. So it's not like you could do anything to encourage it. It was out of your control. But there was this hope that sometimes you could have these streams in the desert that would help you go. And they're saying to God, like those streams, would you rain again? where we see brokenness and where we see no hope, which you deliver. See, the trouble is, I've found one of them. There's lots of troubles with being a Christian, but one of them I find is sometimes I don't understand God, right? And here's a couple of the ways that I do it. God is a father. That's how he reveals himself. That's how he talks of himself not a headmaster. And yet my tendency is that at times I'm afraid to ask God for things, as if he's a headmaster, that I kind of don't want to feel that I'm vulnerable and that I need help, kind of want to convince him that I'm self-sufficient and and I can sort myself out. And sometimes I don't treat him like father like that, but he is a father. And so why would he mind for his people to ask again? He doesn't mind. That's not ingratitude. That's understanding that he's a father. And he wants to give all he can to his kids. I read a fantastic article in in The Guardian. I don't normally read The Guardian all the time. It makes me sound sort of very intellectual, doesn't it? Uh, Not really. It's all pretense. Uh, But anyway, reading this article, and it encouraged me because uh, I'm a dad of two young boys. And, you know, what that means is that most of our life is complete and utter chaos. And, you know, sort of worrying, oh my goodness, what on earth do people think of us, (laughs) you know? Uh, And so I read a fantastic article that said, it is supposedly a good thing to have demanding children. And so I saw that headline, I thought, fantastic, I'm going to read this. Uh, And and the gist of it is that if you have demanding children, the, the idea of it being good is that they feel safe enough to ask. They feel safe enough to be quite 
uh, confident and demanding around you because they know they're not going to be repelled. You're not going to sort of just push them away and, uh, and ignore them. So they almost feel like they have the license to. So, you know, I felt good for a couple of minutes between sort of temper tantrums. Oh, you know, maybe we're doing all right then. God is a father who wants to hear our requests. Why wouldn't he? But he's a father and he's not a butler. You see, the thing is, God's primary concern is not our comfort. He's not a butler to be waiting on you. You notice about that advert and other ones like it too, because we picked BMW, but it, it could have been any number of things, all right? So if you drive a BMW, don't feel bad. You know, just enjoy your car. It, it could have been any number of things that we picked on. It was just an easy choice. Um, I won't look at you now as you sort of <laughs> respond awkwardly. Uh, every time, these things are promising comfort. They're promising an easier, easier and better life and telling you that you deserve that. That why shouldn't your whole life be about purchasing comfort? Whether it's a car, whether it's a particular career path, whether it's a particular holiday destination, or whatever it is, purchase yourself comfort. Make yourself comfortable. But of course it never delivers, because you know as well as me. And I'm not immune to advertising. Believe you me. You know the feeling when you've bought a product that just just hasn't worked out. And it just hasn't delivered what you thought it would. You, know, you thought it would make so much more of an impact. Uh, and really, really it hasn't. Christianity is unique. Unique to religions, unique to other ways of thinking, unique to that kind of consumerism. Because it doesn't promise comfort. To be really honest with you. It doesn't anywhere promise that. In fact, what it promises instead is a kind of contentment and joy that enables you to go through much or nothing equally. Your portion and your plan from God might be to have much. Rejoice in that. That might be his plan. It might also be pain. Or it might be a little of the both. What Jesus offers is a joy and a contentment that sees us through both much and little. Not comfort. See, joy is not only evidence just in dreaming, laughing, dancing, singing, shouting, all these things. It is in part, but it could also be evidenced in calm, in peace, in endurance. Just as much. God offers a joy to find, a joy to get through, but also a joy to go. There's a joy that kind of makes your tears worth it. See, the hope of joy to come, and this future joy, actually enables us to go and to follow Jesus on his mission in the face of adversity. It says there that those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. There's going to be a reversal of fortunes so that those who now sow in tears will one day reap in joy. In fact, it goes on that those who go out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing sheaves with them. 
And the above idea of, you know, that those who sow tears now will one day reap with shouts of joy is made sense of if we are going out as Jesus' followers, joining him on his mission. Because you know that's what he asks for, right? So one of the ways I put it to my people often is, and I annoy them with it, no doubt, so they're probably enjoying a week off, is to say that, you know, Jesus doesn't ask you to agree with him. He does not ask you to agree with him. There is no place where he says, please, will you placate me by telling me I have some right ideas? Please, will you compliment me? Jesus doesn't have an ego problem. He's not like me. He doesn't worry what you think of me. He doesn't worry whether you think that this was good or not, and how did it rate to last week and the one before, and how did it rate to the other guests? How did it rate to the more experienced people? He doesn't worry. He doesn't have an ego problem. He doesn't need your eye to agree with him, and he doesn't ask for it. He asks for us to follow. His command is very, very clear and direct to follow him. Take up your cross and follow me. That is, if you believe in me, if you really actually do, not just saying that to me to make me feel good, you will follow. You will live like me. That's not a suggestion. That's not one of those things that we talk about in Christian circles. Where it's like, it would kind of be good if you did that. It's, you've got to. If, if you're following Jesus, you're going to have to live like him. Because that's what he says, and he doesn't give another category. But if that's to happen, it's only going to happen if there's a hope of a joy to come to keep us going. Because there's times when that is hard, when that isn't easy, when that's not going to feel nice, and where people are going to tell you, why don't you seek a bit of comfort? Seek a bit of comfort in a car or some clothes. You know, you hear people talk about retail therapy. I can't understand that because I shop with kids, so that's that's not therapeutic. (laughs) Absolutely not. But you know that even the people who do that, that that's short-lived, right? That That it never does quite the job. So those people you talk to, you notice people always need a little bit more money. It's always a little bit more Because it doesn't deliver. It doesn't deliver joy. The hope of a joy to come in Jesus can actually see us through. And it's put a couple of ways by Paul in the New Testament. He's talking about the same thing. He puts it like this. He says, I consider my present sufferings, and he's been through a lot. He goes through a whole list. His worst day of all, which I kind of laugh at in a way, but that's only because I've never experienced it, is he talks of how he's shipwrecked, arrives on an island, then gets bitten by a snake. That is a bad day. Believe me, that is a bad day. That's the day when I think you'd be quite entitled to maybe say, come on, God. (laughs) I've gone on this mission for you. We've been shipwrecked. I've been ill. I get on the island finally. Now a snake bites me. Great. He says these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the future glory before us. Or in another place, talks of how he was willing to leave behind his very prosperous and affluent and successful career to go and plant churches because he says he considered everything 
as loss or rubbish, well, actually, the, the, the real world is, is much more street language for, you know, what you do in the bathroom. I consider it all as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And there is the equation for Paul. I am able to continue this journey, to continue working really hard, getting no respect, no honor. The churches I planted have turned their back on me. I've been beaten up. I've been put in prison. I've been bitten by snakes. And I continue because Jesus is of more value. And I have Jesus. And he says, it is worth it. I do not consider myself a martyr because this is worth it. I'm not losing out. I'm gaining. So in another place he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What are you going to do? You're going to threaten to kill me? So what? So what? And until then, my life is joy in Christ. It is that kind of hope that will see you through. Comfort won't do it. But that kind of joy will. It's the same joy that Jesus himself looks to as he uh, gets ready to embark upon the cross. It says in one place that to look to Jesus who for the joy set before him went to the cross, enduring the shame. It was a joy set before him that enabled him to completely give up of himself. It was only that joy of knowing God, being with him, following his plan, that enabled him to do something so painful that involved completely giving himself up. And the only thing that will really help us as we seek to follow Jesus seek to follow him in, in this city or in, in the place where we live, in the valleys. Seek to see him actually change the place in which we live to be a kind of place of flourishing, of quality, of freedom, of hope for everyone, regardless of your background and, uh, and, and your thoughts and, and where you've been, is a hope in a future joy. In future joy of knowing Jesus and being one with him puts it towards the end of the Bible, says that God himself will be with them, that is us, uh, as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. And the hope and the joy in that hope is of a kingdom restored, and an earth restored to how it was meant to be. You and I were not made to die. You know why it feels so hard at a funeral, regardless of the situation and the story of the person? Because they weren't supposed to die. Nobody was. And the hope is of a kingdom restored where death is beaten and pain is removed. And life which feels at times so much like measuring things gradually breaking and decaying would be renewed. That life would actually be again about enjoying, having joy in God and in his creation he's given for us, which was all made good. That's the only hope that will see us through and enable us to go. So there's a joy to find. Those that you can find true joy in God's redeeming you. Redeeming you from the things that even you actually can't do on your own. 
A joy that actually enables you to get through even pain. And a joy that enables you to go and that makes the sometimes tears and sometimes hurts of life worth it and make any sort of sense. That is the joy Jesus offers when he says, come to me, my yoke is easy, my burden light. Come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden. Find rest, find joy, find peace in me. Everything you've been looking for everywhere else, I'm not delivering to you. Because you know a lot of those things that I've talked about, they're not bad in and of themselves. Of course they're not. Cars, holidays, families, work, it's not bad. They just don't deliver joy. They just don't deliver And you'll just be disappointed if that's all your hope is in. But if your hope is in joy in Christ, there is a hope that will deliver. I pray for us very briefly and and then welcome the band to to lead us in, in some songs. Father God, I want to thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your goodness and grace and kindness. Um, in wanting to bring together a people, in wanting to actually relate to us, and in having gone to such a great cost uh, in sending your son Jesus to come and live the life we should have lived and and die the death we we should have died in our place to bring us back into your family. Thank you so much for your kindness and grace in offering that freely to us. And I ask this morning that as as we've heard your words that uh, we would find joy in you again. Find joy in the God who loves us and wants to know us and be known regardless of where we've been and regardless of where we feel we are right now. Thank you for your kindness and grace towards us. May you help us as we sing and and celebrate that again. Amen.